there was a woman who moved from one state to another, and she was seeking a church home, and she felt that she found the church that she wanted to join. But she wanted to learn more about what the church taught and what they believed. So she went up to people constantly, week after week, asking them, what does the church believe about this? What does the church believe about that? What does the church believe about this? And one day, she did the same thing, and she walked up to a deacon, and she said, Deacon, what does the church teach about election? The deacon looked and paused and walked away. She went up to a choir member and said, Ma'am, what, what does the church teach about election? The choir member looked and kind of smiled again and walked away. She went to another member of the church and says, What does the church teach about election? And finally, the deacon who first heard her looks and says, Well, we believe that each member is free to vote for whoever they want to vote for. <laughs> when we talk about election or God electing saints is a subject in which many people are confused about and some some have even gone into to deep controversy about the issue but but election should not be something that we're afraid to talk about it should not be something that we just skirt through and quickly read through scripture it, it should be something that we embrace because God gave us this doctrine or this teaching about election in order that we would be encouraged when the Apostle Paul speaks about election, he always speaks about it retrospectively. He speaks about it in order that we can look at our current situation and have an answer to a deep question. A question that I just asked, a question that says, how are we saved? Is salvation initiated by us or is it initiated by God? Are we the ones who are doing more work for our salvation or is God the one? who is more committed to our salvation. And Paul begins this letter, and he, he starts off by saying, Blessed be the God, in verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul starts off by encouraging the church in Ephesus by letting them know that they are blessed because their father, God the Father, is blessed. Amen. And he lets them know that we are blessed in Christ and that God has given us, it says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Stop and let's think about that. Paul is saying to the saints that God has given us every spiritual blessing, every spiritual help that we need to be successful in this life. And there may be someone here today who feels beat up or who feels like their sin is dragging them down and who feels like there is no victory in Christ. I want to encourage you and let you know that you have all the tools that you need. God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing that we need in Christ Jesus. The key is us understanding and knowing that and acting on faith and growing and learning to use the tools that he has blessed us with. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. There is absolutely nothing that we lack in Christ. Christ has already given us the victory. Christ has already given us the victory over the temptation to drink alcohol. 
Christ has already given us the, the victory over fornication. Christ has already given us the victory, the tools for the victory over envy and over lust and over malice and, and over depression. Look at somebody say, we just have to activate it. Verses 4 through 12, Paul tells the church that these blessings are made available through one source, and that is God. One source in three persons. And that's the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In verses 4 through 6, to give you a quick overview of what we just read, Paul shows us that these spiritual blessings are available to us, number one, through the selection of the Father which we will talk about today, through God electing a people for himself. Number two, through the sacrifice of the Son, that we are able to obtain these blessings because Christ, as the song says, sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood. But number three, by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that God has given us his Spirit, and through his spirit, we receive power. But as we look at this question of whether or not we save ourselves or God saves us, we don't have to think too far or look too far and think too hard. All we have to do is go to God's word. In verse 4, the Bible says, even as he chose us even as he chose us. The first thing we want to understand is that God chose us. That God, he handpicked us and he selected us. In today's society, in today's world, especially in the Western world, that's, that's hard to believe. Because we, many times, people talk about salvation as if they were saved or they saved themselves, you know? And we say it a lot of times, probably without even really thinking about it, you know, when I chose God or when I came to God. But it's important, as Paul was showing us, that we understand that God chose us. As I talked about last week, we never would have chose God if God had not chose us first. Because we are born in iniquity. We are born in sin. And our sin, our sin nature has a, a hold on us. And our, our sin is something that we enjoy and, and something that we love. We, we love the darkness. And we hate it, the light. We were like Adam and Eve, and, and Adam and Eve in the garden, once they sinned, how they hid from God. They hid from the voice of God, and, the, and they hid from the light of God. That is all of our testimonies. As we all, before we came to Christ, we hid from Christ. But the Bible tells us that God chose us, that he handpicked us, that he selected us, that we could not choose Christ unless the Father chose to make our hearts attracted to Christ. But he goes on and he says not only has Christ chose us, has God chose us, it says even as he chose us in him. In him. So we are chosen in Christ. 
Let me back up for a second and just talk about us being chosen by God. Because that statement can be very dangerous if one does not give a footnote and a proper explanation. We are chosen by God, the Bible says, by grace. It's important that we understand that. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's his undeserved favor. It's God having mercy on us, a people who only deserve death. In fact, as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, we see that this, this grace of God is a theme of Paul's writing. If we go back up to verse 2, we'll see that he starts verse 2 off and he says, Grace to you. Grace to you. God's favor, God's blessings to you. And if we continue and we look at verse 6, we see also that grace shows up again. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And if we look at verse 7, we see grace again, the end of the verse. And if we look at chapter 2, verse 8, Paul tells us what our, our salvation hinges on. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We are saved by grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that, that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but, but now I'm found. I was, I was blind, and, and now I see. We're saved by grace. God did not choose us because he saw some merit or good in us. God did not elect us in the eons of eternity because he just knew that Jamal would make a good Christian. No, God chose us and he saved us despite of ourselves. Our best works, our best merits are diminished by our simplest sins. The best thing that we have ever done for God is crossed out by the white lie that we tell. Because sin is offensive to God. Because God is so holy and he is without sin. And one speck of sin is disgraceful to a holy and righteous God. The Bible says, Isaiah said, that our, our righteousness is as filthy rags to the Lord. So God did not save us because he saw some good in us. He did not save us because we had it going on. You know, God is not like, he does not choose people like we choose politicians. When we're picking a politician, we look at their agenda, number one. What's their agenda? What are they trying to accomplish? We look at their age, number two. How old are they? Right? We look at their appearance, number three. He sure is unattractive. I don't want to look at him every week. Go ahead, tell the truth, amen. We look at their actions in the past. We don't just care about what they've been saying and doing during their political career. No, we want to know what were they like when they were in college? What were they like when they were in high school? But God doesn't do that. He doesn't look at our agenda. He doesn't look at our age. He doesn't look at our appearance. And praise God, he doesn't look at our actions in the past. 
Let's be real about it. A lot of us will be in a lot of trouble. If God chose us by our appearance and actions in the past. If God chose us by the way we used to look, by the way we talked, and by the way we used to dance and have an afro, we'll be in trouble. Am I right about it? Even if you say, well, I haven't committed a whole lot of sins, that afro that you had in 1972 is bad enough by itself. He looks past us, and he has mercy on us. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, that's exactly what God told Israel. He said, I did not choose you because you were the biggest. He said, when I chose you, you were the fewest. When I, when I chose to have mercy on you, you were in slavery, unable to deliver yourself. And that's all of our testimonies. When God chose Abram, he didn't choose him because he was rich. He didn't choose him because he was great. He chose Abram, and Abram was a Gentile when he chose him. He made him into a Jew, or his lineage into a Jew. Did the same thing for Moses. He didn't say, Moses, I'm going to use you because I see some good in you. Moses had just murdered a man. He chooses us in spite of us in order that he would have mercy on us. That's what election is, is God choosing us and electing us despite ourselves. Our election does not depend on our, our, our human will or effort. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. This is Paul talking about God's sovereign choice from Romans 9 through 11. And listen to what he says, and I want you to think about this, how God does not choose us, or he did not choose us, according to ourselves. He says, verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom 
I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul tells Israel that, that our, our, our election, God, when he chose us, it was not based on us. Every single human being, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, deserves death. That was what God said. If you eat of this tree, you will truly die. And because of our, the sins of Adam and Eve, we all should be condemned to death, to death. Nobody deserves life because we all, on our own, will choose to disobey God because our hearts want to be in control. So when God has mercy on someone, he does it out of his, the goodness of his heart. He does it despite ourselves, despite our will, and there is nothing that we can do on our own that, that merits our own salvation. Paul pointed to Esau and Jacob. He said when they did neither good, neither, neither good or bad, God chose to have mercy on Jacob and to love Jacob in a specific way. Amen? There's a temptation to, to think about God choosing us, and, and I've, I've heard people say that you know, the reason why God chose us is because he foreknew us, or, uh, which is true, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And people will say, uh, sometimes say that the Bible uh, is speaking of how God chose us because he did. He saw some good in us, and he, he knew that we would, in fact, come to him. He foresaw in the future, that we would come to him, therefore he predestined us or he chose us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That word for new there, which the Bible is talking about, is not talking about God uh, choosing us because he just knew that we would serve him, but rather that word for new is, is, is connected to the word know throughout the scripture. The word for new is talking about how God knows us, how he chose to know us in an intimate and very personal way, despite him knowing how sinful we would be. It's not about him looking at us and saying, well, I'm going to choose Jamal because I know that Jamal one day will come to accept me, but it's, it's him saying, I'm going to, to choose Jamal, even though I know that Jamal would not come to me unless I intervene. And God, God chooses to have mercy on us, for none of us would follow him if God had not intervened. God, when he chose us, he guaranteed, he guaranteed that he, that we would come to him. That's what election is. It's a, it's a guarantee. It's a, it's a promise that God makes to those whom he chooses that, that I am going to intervene and I am going to have mercy on them. Charles Spurgeon, a, a wonderful preacher and theologian who, who lived and, and who many of us know and many of us read and quote, he once says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. Is that your testimony today? 
I know that if God had not called me, if God had not softened my heart, I know for sure that I would have stayed in a disco in 1970 and did my own thing. I'm confident that he chose me. Second thing he shows us here is that God chose us in him, verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him, or in Christ. God chooses us in Christ. When God chooses us and when he, he handpicks us or selects us, he, he chooses us to be in Christ, to be united in Christ, to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of the bride of Christ. What a great blessing it is to be chosen in Christ. We weren't just chosen to be chosen, but we were chosen to be a part of Christ's body, to be a part of Christ's ecclesia, a part of the church. And that's why God chose you, in order that you will be a part of Christ. And that's a theme as we read throughout this scripture, that we are chosen in him. Not only does it say that in verse 4, it says that in verse 7, in him we have redemption. It says that in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. God chose us in him. Not only has he chosen us in him, we, we must know that the way in which we know that we have been chosen is simply by our response to Christ and Christ's word. Those who have been chosen by God are those who have been blessed with an opportunity to, to respond with conviction when the word of God is preached. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 through 5, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is Paul saying to the church at Thessalonica. He said, we know that God has chosen you. How do we know that God has chosen you? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And part of the reason why people don't like to talk about God election is because we have a fear that we're going to get to heaven and we're going to stand before God and all of a sudden God's going to say, no, I didn't choose you. No, that's not going to happen. You know if you have been chosen, if you have been called, if you have, if you have truly came to Christ by the way in which you responded to Christ. By the fact that the words that you heard were not just words, but they were powerful. By the fact that it, it convicted your heart, that it reminded you of a truth, that you are imperfect and that you and that me, that we are, are sinners. And we, we know that we have been chosen because we have a desire to seek after Christ, a desire to be united with God and God's people, a de desire to hear God's word, a desire to learn, a desire to grow. And, and even though the desire is not always where it should be, we can be confident and know that God can, can easily just, just reunite our hearts to be where it should be. Be where it should be. We don't have to fear about whether or not we're chosen. We know if we're chosen by simply if we love the Lord, if we care about what God says, and even if you don't right now, it doesn't mean that you're not chosen. God will not give up on those who are his. Peter said that God desires that, that all would be saved. Talking about all of the elect, all those who he's chosen, that's why we're still here right now. It's because God still has some who he has chosen that has not yet come into the light. That has not yet come to worship him.
Verse 4 goes on to say, even as he chose us, and we know that's by grace in him, before the foundation of the world. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1 and 1, God had already chose us. Before the stars, before the valleys, before the mountains, before the lilies, before the butterflies, before the giraffes, before the pelicans, before the endless waters, God chose a people for himself. He chose a people for himself. And we should praise God that we have a God who is well planned, a God who is well thought out. A God who's not like me, amen. I, I can't plan my week to save my life, but God can plan eternity. That's what he told Jeremiah, who was a young man who was standing before the Lord in fear and trembling when he called Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. I became intimate with you. I chose to have mercy on you, even though I knew that your nature would not love me. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I, I set you aside and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And, and the testimony that, that, it, that we see in Jeremiah chapter 1 and 5, we, we must see every time we look in the mirror that God knew you before you were born and he called you to be a participant in the Great Commission. Before you were born, What a wonderful truth that God cared about you and that he chose to give you a not guilty verdict before you actually committed your first sin. Oh, we should feel like those who, had, who, who, who are on death row and who receive a pardon from the president. For we all were on death row because of our, our sin nature and because of the nature of Adam. But God pardoned us and said, I will have mercy on you. Amen. Next thing we see in this text is that predestination is purposeful. Predestination is purposeful. He goes on to say, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose a people for himself in order that they would be holy and blameless. Agios in Greek, agios, to be a saint. It means to be holy. It means to be, to be set apart. And God, God chose a, a people for himself. He, he looked at all of humanity and all of his creation, all of whom would, be, would not be, be able to, to, to please him and to meet his standard as, of perfection. And he looked, and, and instead of condemning them all, he said, I will have mercy upon some, and I will select some out in order that I would make them holy holy, clothe them in holiness without blemish, without blemish. In the Old Testament, we see that, that God had Israel selecting certain animals to be sacrificed. And the animals that he wanted to sacrifice was the animals in which were holy, 
which didn't have blemishes on them. So they would take a lamb, they would take a goat, they would look at their flock, and they would take the best thing that they had, and they would offer it up to God as a living sacrifice. And that's what God is doing with me and you. He, he has chosen to look out of a flock of, of people who, who deserve to be condemned and deserve hell, and he has chosen to look and to have mercy and to set it aside as holy in order to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And a good thing about God and, 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 and us being made holy and blameless is that it really is the work of God. Amen. That it really is the work of God. That I can't make myself holy. I can't make myself blameless. The only one who can make me holy, the only one who can make me blameless is Christ Jesus. That God takes the righteousness of Christ and he, he imputes it upon me and he declares me holy. He declares me righteous even while I'm struggling, even though I'm still a sinner, even though I still have things that I, I have to get right. He looks at me and he calls me agios. He, he calls me holy. He calls you holy. Amen. What a great blessing that is. That God chose and particular people in order that he might make a beautiful masterpiece out of them. God committed in the eons of eternity to make us to look like the most beautiful being in existence. And that is his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That is exactly what God is doing to you and with you day by day. God is making you and me to look like his son. Through our trials and through our tribulations, he is causing all things to work together for the good. Even the worst thing that, that happens to you throughout the day, God is allowing us to experience and he is taking that, that experience and he is using it for our good. He is using it to discipline us. He is using it to, to help us to grow, to look more like Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The next point we see in this text is that God, when he chose us, when he marked us out, when he predestined us, he predestined us, the Bible says, in love. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. We must see that God is love. God is love. That's what John 4 and 8 says. For we all are, were his enemies. We all were against him. We all, in our, if left to ourselves, will we'll hate God. We will hate that which is holy and clean to that which satisfies us. But God is so loving that when he could have chosen not to choose anybody, he chose to choose some. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He, he loves the world in a, in a missionary sense. That's why he wants us to go out to the world and, and to share the gospel. That's why he says to the world, he gives an open call, come unto me all you who laid and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is love. He wants all to have an opportunity to experience, but, but all will not experience because all do not and will not love him. And really, all of us will not love him unless he intervenes and has mercy. 
Not only is he love, but the Bible says that he elects us according to the purpose of his will. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. He adopted us to be sons through Christ. He allowed us to be heirs with Christ, that, that every blessing that Christ has, we have. Every blessing that Christ has, we have. That God, when he looks at us, he, he looks at us in the same manner in which he looks at his son once he sets us apart. And he, he adopts us and gives us those same blessings. And he does it for a reason. It says he does it according to the purpose of his will. God has a plan, and his plan is to unite everything back to himself. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11, in him we have, uh, have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you ever stop and think about that? That God has created a creation for a specific purpose. The God didn't just spin the world into orbit and didn't make the galaxies and, and the sun and the moon for a game or for a joke or just for no purpose, but he did it with a purpose. And that purpose is to exalt his son. That purpose is to show his creation what true love is. That purpose is to give people who are condemned and who were going their own way a chance at eternal life, a chance at joy, a chance at peace. God has a purpose. And that is to unite all things in Christ Jesus. Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord it stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. And we must know that God's purpose will never be thwarted, will never be thrown off of orbit, that what God has set out to do, he will do. Amen. Those whom he have chosen, he will glorify. God's plan, it will not fail. God's plan, it will not fail. As we think about election, we have to think about God. We have to realize that God is wise. The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west is as far as our thoughts is from, our, is from his thoughts. So sometimes when we stop and we try to think about these deep things and, and we try to understand them, you know, we get discouraged, but we shouldn't get discouraged. I'm glad that I serve a God who thinks on a far better level than I. If I was to walk into an operating room and if I was to, to sit next to a brain surgeon as he was doing a surgery and he was using the same, all the terms that I knew and was doing everything that I would know to do, I would be nervous. He should be a lot smarter than I am. I shouldn't be able to figure out why he's doing everything that he's doing. My heart should rest in the fact that I know that he knows what he's doing and that he's equipped to do what he's doing. And may our hearts rest in the fact that, that God knows what he's doing, that God has a plan that is in place and that his plan will not be thwarted. In Psalm chapter 2, the Bible says that God looks at the nations and he sees the plans of the nations, the plans of the wicked kings who think that they are God. And the Bible says he laughs at them. He laughs at them. 
God looks at the things that we plan and God looks at the things that we think that we've figured out and God looks at the way that we create things in order to point to ourselves and say look how great man is and God just laughs and he reminds us through tornadoes and hurricanes and, and earthquakes that, that we are not in control, that he's in control. Reminds us as we stare up into the sky and as our eyes can only see so far, he, he reminds us as he allows us to create telescopes that, that we have no idea what's really out there. That what's really out there is, is way bigger than we could ever think, way bigger than we can ever imagine. And, and as long as we are on this earth and discovering things, it will pale to the beauty and the co comparison of a, a sovereign God who is in control. So what should we do with a sermon like this? What should we do with a sermon about election? How does this help me day to day? How does this help me when I'm on my job? How does this help me as I raise my kids? The first thing that we should realize is number one, that understanding the doctrine or the teaching of election, it should cause us to rest. It should cause our hearts to rest in God. To rest. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. Now listen to this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It should cause us to rest in the fact that we know that God is more committed to our salvation than we are. Amen. He is. He has already foreseen, he has already commanded that those whom he called as his sheep, that they will be glorified, that they will experience heaven. So I don't care how hard your heart is labored with an imperfection that you have. Know that if you have come to Christ and if you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, that you can rest in the fact that that sin bothers God more than it bothers you and that God is able to help you to overcome that sin. That God is able to help you to overcome anything that you are faced with, that he is the one who is purifying you, he is the one who is making you, and that you can rest, into him, rest on him coming to me, all you who are laden and, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. God is the only one who can give our souls rest. God is the only one. The second thing is it should cause us to respond and live with great humility. Seeing that God chose us apart from our own merit and apart from our works should cause us to approach God with bow down heads and open hands and say, God, I know I'm not worthy. I know that I'm not worthy to be used by you. I know that I'm not worthy to stand in the, the congregation of believers Sunday after Sunday. I know that I'm not worthy to, to have my eyes open to your word. 
It should cause us to say, God, I know that you are the one who is saving me and you are the one who has made me. And we should respond to others not with pride, not with indignation, not with envy, not with jealousy, but with humility, knowing that we don't deserve the little bit that we do have. A person who walks around and says, with pride on their heart says, well, I'm chosen, I'm elected, I know that God is for me, who can be against me, and they do it with a voice of pride, is one who does not understand truly what God has done for them. That woman who was at the well, John chapter 4, that woman who got to meet Jesus personally, who Jesus stopped by to visit, he could have visit, visited any other person in, in Samaria. He could have went and visited, visited a noble person. He could have visited the persons, the, the people who were on the council, but he visited a, a prostitute, someone who was not worthy. He took the time to introduce himself to her and to unreveal, to, 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 to unscatter her thoughts and to reveal himself as Messiah. That's what God did with you. That's what God did with me. He could have taken the time to allow his Holy Spirit to hit anybody when we was in VBS as a teenager. He could have taken his Holy Spirit to, to, to hit anybody when we first heard the gospel and believed. But he, he chose to allow his spirit to hover over us in order that we would come to see ourselves as a sinner and repent. The third way that we should respond. It's through evangelism. It's through evangelism. Paul in Acts chapter 18, 1 through, 12, 1 through 11, is in Corinth. And God called him to go and to minister there. And Paul would have cut his trip short had not God responded this way. God told him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in Corinth who are not my people. So Paul could have just kept going, could have just shared the gospel with few and went to the next city, but God stopped him and said, no, stay here. Stay here because I have many people here who I have called. I have many people here who I want to work through. And don't you know that's true of you at your jobs? That's true of you and me at our church? That God has many people in this Petersburg area, in this Newburgh area. God has many people whom he has called, whom he has chosen, whom he has predestined to save. And God wants us to stay and to labor in this community and to share the gospel in this community in order that they would come to know Jesus. Paul stayed for a year and a half there, and many were saved. You know, I once went fishing at a pay lake here with Brother Pollard and some other brothers. My first time fishing. Uh, pay lake is a lake in which you pay to come in, and they dump the fish in the, in the lake, and you just go out there and you just fish. And I remember, you know, I wasn't really doing a good job catching anything. I caught one, so I, I am, I am a, a fisherman now because I did catch a fish. But I remember when we had 
kept, later on in the day when we were fishing, uh, a man came up and he took a whole bunch of fish and he just threw it in the lake. Me, I'm completely ignorant of pay lakes and everything else. So I'm like, wow, he's throwing fish in the lake. And he threw it in the lake, and, and Deacon Pollard and, and some other men, they were, uh, you know, probably about 30 feet away from, from where he dumped it. And I remember thinking to myself, if we can't catch a fish now, <laughs> we are fishermen. Because the man threw fish in the lake, and we're there with bait. We know the fish are there. And all they had to do is stay there and fish, and they would catch fish. It's the same thing what God has done. With you at your job, with you at school, with, with you at work, God has people there who are thirsty and who are hungry for the gospel. And it is our job to continue to fish, to continue to preach, to continue to pray, to continue to praise, because they will come. Don't ever give up on someone. I'm going to say that again. Don't ever give up on someone. Don't ever come to a place where you just say, you know what, I'm done with them. I've tried to do all that I can. Maybe they're not chosen. Maybe it's not in God's will. Don't ever have that attitude. Approach every person as if you know that God has chosen them and cry out to every person with everything that you have and let them know that there is a, a living Savior who cares about their dying soul. Christ didn't give up on that thief when he was on the cross. Christ continued to minister even at death and, and a man who most people had counted out as gone and counted out as worthless on his dying bed came to know God. Some of us, we have some aunts, some uncles, some friends, Nuke Nuke and Bebe and them who still have not come to make a confession. Keep praying, keep evangelizing for that is what we have been called to do. And the final thing that the doctrine of election should lead us to is it should lead us to praise God. It should lead us to praise God. When we look at Ephesians, praise is all in Paul's letter. Paul is telling them this not so that they could be confused or, or haughty or, or lift their hearts up in pride, but Paul is telling them this in order that they can respond in the appropriate way by praising God for his grace and his mercy. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. God wants to hear the praises of his people. And when we truly understand that we are not here by our work or by our merit or because we saved ourselves, but that salvation is initiated and completed by God, we can do nothing but praise him. For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. God has given us grace and allowed us to see Jesus as the most beautiful possession because he wants us to praise him. He wants us to let the world know how excellent he is, how great he is, how marvelous he is, 
is how he transferred us from darkness into marvelous light. And that's why we can join the psalmist when the psalmist says, make a joyful noise. God wants to hear noise from his vessels of mercy. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. He didn't say it depended on how we felt or how the day was going. He said, praise God in good times and bad times. I will bless the Lord, oh my soul, with all that is within me. I will praise him continuously because he's been good to me. Everything that I have is a result of his grace. Everything that I have is a result of his mercy. He could have taken me out a long time ago. He could have taken me out the first time I told him that I was sorry and that I would never do it again. But he didn't take me out. He had mercy on me. He could have taken me out the second time I told him I was sorry, but went right back to the same sin. But he did not take me out. He had mercy on me. He could have taken me out the third, the fourth, the fifth time. But he is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is a God who is patient. And one day this God who was patient with us will glorify us, will allow us to stand in front of his presence. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. And I will be able to stand in his presence, not worried about a, a light bill, not worried about a mortgage, not worried about a car bill, not worried about who don't like me, not worried about who's looking at me like I'm crazy when I'm worshiping. But I will stand before his presence with the people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, and we will look at God and say, truly you have sought me, truly you did bought me, truly you did leave the 99 and come save the one. Let us praise God because he's a good God, because he's a great God, because he's a merciful God, because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, because he's a God of grace and mercy, because he cares about our salvation more than we care about our salvation. May we see ourselves as vessels of mercy and never forget that every day that we live, we are living on mercy. God bless you.